sure is great to be able to come together on Sunday morning such as this, isn't it? And to sing songs such as Sing and Be Happy, one of the first ones that we sang just a few moments ago. Or that most recent song in which we, in fact, just now sang about the characteristics of our service to God and how we love our Savior too. Well, all those things perhaps have already been a great blessing for our service. And yet, as we come to this particular part of it, for the next few moments, there's a question that I have invited us to consider, a question that goes like this, what must I do to be forgiven by God? I realize full well that that question has a great amount of import attached to it, even in the way it's written, and yet there's a multitude of potential answers which our world would be quick to offer. I might suggest, as you look at this introductory slide with me, that as a part of that, we will be looking in some interesting detail at the thought today of forgiveness. Now, may I be quick to say, the Bible discusses, of course, many circumstances in which human beings forgive other human beings. Matthew 18 discusses that at length. But our primary focus today will be to ask the question, what about God's forgiveness of you and me? What's required in order to make that happen? It is with that in mind, then, that I would like us to first use the first element in the sermon to establish the importance of forgiveness, and then for a second consideration to look at a necessary accompaniment to that truth, and then finally to come fully to consider the practicality of how it happens. And so with that in mind, why don't we at least remind ourselves of the pressing need for being forgiven by God. I say it that way for this reason. It really is impressing, a pressing matter, isn't it? Because why don't we pause to note this. God has always had a law to which human beings are subject. That was true of the days of Adam and Eve. It continues to be true even until this day. Now, sometimes we, you know, as we refer to the Word of God, will make note of these different dispensations. Remember, the root word of dispensation is just dispensing. The ways that God delivered or revealed or set forth His will, His law. There were those like Noah and Adam and Abraham who lived in a time when it wasn't written down like it is for you and me today. God shared it by word of mouth. He told them and then expected them to indicate and to command of their family that way. Genesis 18 verse 19. But you and I will recall that there came a time when the children of Israel assembled at Mount Sinai. And God gave to Moses a law which he was to write down so that they would have continual access to it. We often call that the law of Moses and the Bible calls it that too. But notice again, all human beings were subject to a law. Today, you and I know the law of Christ is the law to which the human family is subject. That law is referred to, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 9.21. It's referred to again in Galatians 6 verse 2. But we might pause to say there's never been a human being alive on earth that was not subject to the law of God. Now on that slide, you'll note this rather quick observation. What happens when you violate that law to which you're subject? That law of God that He has delivered and expects you to obey. You can call it transgression if you like, or you can call it violation. You can call it missing the mark. 
quite often the Bible word that's used can well be imagined or at least pictured as a bullseye target and someone shooting an arrow. When you miss the mark, you're guilty of transgressing that law. You're guilty of what the Bible will call sin. So at that point, we've learned the definition for sin. And the Bible will state it that way in 1 John 3 verse 4. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Now that we understand a bit about what sin is, it is that circumstance in which whatever God's will is for the human family, whether that was true of Noah, whether it was true of Moses, whether it's true of you and me today, whatever the particulars of that law are, when I fail, when I choose to do something different, when I choose to disobey it, I have become guilty of sin. To think about sin that way certainly removes from it the nature of subjective character. It's thus not merely a preference, an idea, or a way of looking at things. A transgression of God's law is sin. doesn't matter what society, what culture, what anyone else thinks about it. No wonder in that connection, note this rather startling fact. So someone might ask, well, who is guilty of this sin? After all, many people would say, I've never murdered anybody. I've never cheated on my spouse. I've never cheated the government out of taxes. I've never been guilty of these other well-regarded things that are so evil and wrong. And yet the Bible in such dramatic truth will say this in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means none of us are exempt. When we recognize then that the law that God has given for us today, and in many ways what was involved even in earlier dispensations as well, it not only involves what one does, it involves what one says, it involves the way that one says it, it involves what one thinks, it even includes what one chooses not to do. You see, it's just also sin if I know to do what's right, but then choose to not do it. James 4.17 puts it like this, To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. One of the points then you, can I, you and I can easily take is, I'm guilty of sin and so are you. None of us can then claim, well, I'm above this law. I've never given myself in violation to it. We cannot honestly make that statement. There have been times, at the very least, we've thought things we shouldn't. We've left undone some things we should be doing. We maybe have overtly done what God commanded us not to do. But in one way or another, we have become guilty of sin. At this point, some might say, well, so what? I'm still alive. I continue to breathe and I continue to go about my daily walk of life. Is there any penalty to this sin I've committed? And the Word of God is also quick to answer. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. The wages. That means the consequences. What inevitably is produced by it. It's death. Death, of course, at the most fundamental level, involves the separation from God. It involves being distanced from Him and the ultimate finality of His blessings. James will join in that discussion like this in James 1, beginning in verse 13. 
as James highlights the nature of lust and sin, he said, Let no man say when he is tempted that he is tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. There is again, from a different Bible writer, but still a powerful matter and inspiration, the fact that sin will invariably produce death. Now in this life, that separation from God is serious. But at the time of judgment onward, it's eternal. To be separated from Him, to not enjoy the fullness of His blessings and that which He offers... At this point, doesn't things look bleak? All of us are sinners, and sin leads to death. What is to be done about this? Well, you'll notice in a very thankful way, on that slide, the Bible does go on to say this, and it was our lesson text that was read earlier today. In Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, we encounter this passage. One of so many others that make reference to something like it, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And so previously we noted again, all are guilty of sin and sin always leads to death. But then suddenly there's this bright oasis on the desert of sorrow and sin this bright spot in which there apparently is a mechanism, a means whereby sins can be forgiven, whereby they can be covered, whereby God doesn't hold me responsible for it. Surely we must have some interest. How does this happen? What are the Bible details of this? In what way can you and I then appreciate the forgiveness available from God? As you and I close that slide, may I say, it would seem this surely must be one, if not perhaps the single greatest question of intent that could cross the mind of anybody. I know I'm a sinner, and I know where it's going to lead me if I don't do something about it. And I've learned there apparently is a way that this sin could be forgiven. How does it happen? What's required of me in order for that to occur? Let's move then to the next part of the lesson and see if we can't piece some things together that paint a rather beautiful, demanding, and yet dramatic picture. It begins by starting with another word. So far, we really have given thought to the word forgiveness or the word forgive, but I would like you to appreciate with me how often the Bible will use the word remit or remission in connection to this idea. And so that'll be of great aid to us when we look at several verses coming before us here in just a few moments. And so the first thing we might do is at least define with some care this word remission, or again, its root word remit. I've listed for you at the top of that slide three ways in which that word carries senses in the consideration of the Bible. One of them begins like this. You and I do find verses wherein the word remission is used in connection to being delivered from captivity. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, when God's people were taken into Babylonian captivity, there came a time when they enjoyed remission. 
They were brought out of that captivity and enjoyed freedom. They were no longer subject to the authority of that Babylonian power. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus Himself used it in connection. There it wasn't to Babylon, admittedly, but it was used in connection to being delivered from captivity. The word remission. But there's a second sense in which we encounter the usage of it. It can be used in the sense of being released from an obligation. Or the, to say it differently, to be released from some debt that one otherwise was required to pay. Now I suspect that's the one that maybe we think about at least frequently in some of his songs in our songbook. No, we sometimes sing about, there's a debt that I owed, but I couldn't pay it. Well, there's a lot of power behind a message like that one, isn't there? But you might note yet a third one. It is often used in connection directly to sin. In the sense of being released, sins being released, or being let go. One of the verses that refers to it that way, the one that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 26, verse 28. Now, when you think about sin in connection to remission, I suppose the connection is fairly easy to make. We just read from Romans 4, there's a way for sin to be forgiven. In other words, that is equivalent to saying there's a way for me to be released from the shackles that captivate me to sin. And there's a way that you and I, of course, can allow sins to be gone, to let them go so that I'm no longer subject to the debt that has to be paid in connection to them. Remember, that death that went with them was death. At the next point on that slide, the Bible thus talks at length about sins being let go, about them being us being released from them. And of course, we're going to ask in some detail, well, how does that actually happen today? For that reason, the next thing on the slide, might we begin in Hebrews 9.22. If I would invite you to note a few of the verses that surround that passage, it does say a great deal from the words of the Hebrew writer, the subject of what you and I are dealing with this morning. Allow me to begin reading in verse 20 of that chapter, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by blood, purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Without shedding of blood is no remission. The point the Hebrew writer makes based on that context is he takes the mind of his auditors back into the days of the Old Testament. And you and I remember well that God commanded them to slay a lamb. And on other occasions it was perhaps other animals, but the lamb is probably the one that comes first to mind. They had to take a lamb, slay it, and on that day of atonement each year... The high priest would enter into the holy place with the blood of that lamb, and it would be offered for the sins of the people. The Hebrew writer points out blood was a necessary accompaniment to the acquiring or the attainment of atonement, even under that law, which they were blessed to consider. Blood had its role, and it was an, an essential role. But did you note the way the Hebrew writer closed that statement? 
He didn't use just a past tense verb. He said, without shedding of blood is no remission. He didn't say without shedding of blood was no remission. It's still that way. It's still that way. Now, thankfully, we don't have to go and make sure we gather up a lamb, and we don't have to make sure that we have one back out in the backyard that we can offer at the right time every year. Because as that same chapter will later go on and say, the Lamb of God has been offered for us. He shed His blood one time as a perfect sacrifice for sins forever. Hebrews 10, verses 12 to 14. Without shedding of blood is no remission. Blood is still needed. It is still required. It's still essential. May I suggest to each of us then on the slide, blood is critical. Now we face this question. We know, now that we know blood's involved, isn't it true that our understanding is very limited? There are very few kinds of blood available to us. Trees don't have blood in them. Rocks don't have blood in them. The only blood of which you and I have any knowledge are the blood of animals and the blood of humans. That's it. Now, in the Old Testament, certainly, again, they made usage of the blood of a lamb, the blood of an animal. But in Hebrews 10, verse number 4, we encounter this. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Now, three verses earlier in verse 1 of that chapter... We are there told that the blood of all those sacrifices could never make the consciences clean of those that offered them. So now we've encountered something. The blood of an animal won't do it. The remission of sins cannot be acquired by offering the blood of an animal. That's not going to be enough. It's not sufficient. It's not adequate. That leaves but human blood, that's all that's left. There's another problem. Some might argue, could you or I then slit our finger and offer our own blood for the, for the remission of our own sins? Would that be possible? No. Because there's another problem. One other thing that I didn't mention earlier, what was true about those lambs that even was offered in the Old Testament? What was true about the nature of the animals? Deuteronomy 17.1 said the animal had to be blemishless. It couldn't be lame, blind. It couldn't have some other kind of skin disease. It had to be a perfect lamb. It had to be a lamb that was not encumbered with some ailment, with something that made it less than what God demanded. When you and I come to the New Testament era, we can easily see our problem. I can't offer for my own sins because I'm a sinner. My blood is tainted with my sin. It's not perfect blood. It can never atone for my sins or anybody else's because I'm a sinner. Doesn't it seem at this point that we're almost hopeless? We're all guilty of sin. Sin leads to death, and that's going to take me to hell if something isn't done. And yet the Bible does remind us it is possible for them to be forgiven, but that takes blood. But the blood of an animal can't do it, and the blood of my own can't do it. And the blood of another human won't do it. Where does that leave us? Well, surely we already know what the Lord Himself said. And we're certainly reaching a point where we can smile rather impressively. 
because the God of heaven saw fit to make a way whereby blood was available, but it was blood that would be sufficient. And it was blood that would be adequate. Back in that ninth chapter of Hebrews, let me continue reading, but pick up this time in verse number 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. We needed someone, some being, who wasn't encumbered with sin, who could offer His blood for you and me. And that, of course, states as to why it was so significant that the Lord lived without any sin. Jump forward one chapter with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning in verse number 11, it reads like this, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, listen, which can never take away sins. The Hebrew writer pointed out those priests who served beneath the Old Testament era, how many untold sacrifices did they make? Lambs, turtle doves, goats, rams, a whole host of other animals. They could never take away sin. Let's read onward. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Those are sweet words. We now know that it is the blood of Christ that is the thing whereby our sins can be forgiven. And so near the bottom of that slide, wasn't it Jesus who himself stated in Matthew twenty six twenty eight, as he instituted the Lord's Supper, this is my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. His blood is the very ingredient. It is the agent, if you will. It's the detergent that can cleanse sin. As you and I close that slide, are we then surprised that we see wording along that line appearing in some powerful places like Luke 24, 40, 46 and following? As Jesus gave His apostles that great commission, He said, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. In His name. Oh, indeed, the remission of sins is available through His name because it's His blood. No wonder with all that said could we now not say this. In order for you and I to have our sins forgiven, it is absolutely essential that we somehow apply the blood of Christ to us. We've learned it's Christ's blood that'll do it. We still haven't learned how we apply that blood to us. How do we avail ourselves to it and the power which it has? Let's come to the last part of our lesson then and cast a bit of a spotlight on what I've entitled an application. How do we then apply that blood of Christ to our life, to mine and to yours? We'll begin with some of these thoughts. The Word of God states in a number of ways that that connection, that contact comes in the act we call baptism. Look, for instance, at verses like these. 
in Acts chapter 2, for instance, beginning in verse 36. Peter, you might recall, and the other eleven had preached a rather dramatic and powerful sermon on that blessed day. And they reached this conclusion. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, with that invitation, or at least that statement made, recall what Peter had used to precede it. He pointed them and said, You killed him. You put him to death. But God raised him up. Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't hold him. And right now, Peter would say, He reigns in royal splendor at the right hand of God. As he concluded it, though, he pointed out, that same Jesus that you crucified is Lord in Christ. They were convicted. At least about 3,000 of them were. They were convicted. And they cried, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Do for what? Do for lunch? Do for the next day at work? That was the furthest thing from their mind. They wanted to know what had to be done to remove themselves from the guilt of putting to death the Son of God, which Peter had said that they had just done. How do we obtain remission from this sin? Look at what Peter replied. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. I suppose it's difficult to lay too much emphasis on that four-letter phrase, for the remission of sins. For sins to be remitted, you'll notice, Peter said this is what has to be done in order to obtain it, for the remission of sins. Much could be noted about the Greek wording of that, and that perhaps will take us a bit afield as far as the lesson this morning. The fact still serves to note that for the forgiveness of sins to take place, this is what Peter told them they had to do by inspiration. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. On that slide, I've asked you to notice that whenever we then appreciate the place of baptism and we appreciate the nature of how it's described, notice in this connection, it relates to the remission of sins. And so the purpose of baptism is not, nor has it ever been, nor shall it ever be, as a public spectacle to affirm one is already saved. How can you be saved if you're still in your sins? To effect the remission of sin is the purpose why one is baptized. No wonder in that light. Look at some of the additional ways that it's described in the Word of God. Jesus Himself, in discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, put it like this, "...except a man be born of water and the Spirit..." He cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, the reference to baptism in the wording of the word water, doesn't it help us see again that Jesus even told Nicodemus this was going to be a vital matter. Again, unless you do this, you cannot enter the kingdom. It's a rather fantastic thing to appreciate that as the Bible unfolds this for us, the connection is also appreciated like this. You'll notice that in that very scene of Acts chapter 2, those individuals that were told to repent and be baptized, did you notice? They also had believed. 
which makes perfect sense in light of what Jesus said. He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The importance of belief. The requirement of it. To be dunked in the water is not just baptism. The person has to believe in that which is being done. To believe that Jesus is in fact the Son of God and the element in that belief, of course, will prompt one to perhaps behave the way that some of those on Pentecost did. Remember, they cried out, what should we do? When one realizes that you're in sin and that you're doomed unless it's forgiven, surely it is a matter of great excitement to learn what has to be done. Aren't we all still impressed with the Ethiopian nobleman? Even as Philip and this eunuch were riding along in a chariot, Philip was preaching about Jesus. He was setting out before this man the characteristics of the Lord and what is available through him. And the eunuch's the one who stopped the sermon. The eunuch said, look, here's water. I need to be baptized. Let's do it. He didn't delay. Let's try and find a time next month, next week, next year. All of eternity is hanging in the balance here. And therefore, they went down in the water and Philip baptized him at that moment. How does one obtain forgiveness of sins? So far, we've learned blood's required, but it's the Lord's blood. And we've now begun to see what was told to them on Pentecost to make connection to it. Let's read on. Just as surely as belief is needed, Peter told them repentance is also required. To repent is to change one's mind with respect to. To look with a different viewpoint upon. Perhaps through life one has looked upon certain activities, but once you become a Christian, if those things are sinful, it just has to stop. You can't continue living in them. You can't continue to behave with regard to sin as if... It is no serious matter. Didn't Paul ask it this way in Romans 6, 1? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the inspired answer is, God forbid. You cannot continue to live in it. No wonder in that light. We've learned about the need for belief and the need for repentance. But as you can see on that slide, what about Romans 10, verses 9 and 10? With the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You'll notice that even Jesus Himself had stated it in Matthew 10, verses 38 and following. But isn't it a reminder to us that there is something very important about what the Bible will call confession? We often, of course, thrill at the thought of hearing someone say, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And with the words of that pronouncement, making a commitment to live by the law the Lord has expressed throughout all the days of my life. And then, of course, as we've already noted, there is the submersion in water for the remission of sins. Baptism and the obedience to the gospel is a remarkable thing to consider, isn't it? It is that thing whereby God Himself has promised, I'll forgive your sins. I will remit them when you submit to this. It's a thrilling thing to consider. I've asked you to notice at the bottom of that slide that you and I can then note this. 
isn't it still true that once a person submits to this obedience to the plan of salvation, you're baptized into Christ in a scriptural way. We understand that doesn't mean you're going to live the rest of your life with, without ever making a mistake, without ever making a sin, without ever saying or doing what shouldn't be done or said. 1 John 1 verse 8 says, To that man who says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. So what happens after a person's baptized? But then sins more. Does the person need to be baptized again? Does that person need to fully submit to the entire plan of salvation again? Without the Bible, we would not know. But with the Bible, aren't we thankful we know? We have examples in the Word of God of those who did this very thing. They weren't baptized again. Do you recall the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit with money? He had been baptized. He was a faithful Christian. And then after committing that sin, do you recall what Peter said? Peter told him to repent. He needed to repent of this sin which he now committed to understand the error of it and to desire to do no such thing again. But then you'll notice... He besought Peter to pray for him. He wasn't baptized again, but he did seek the Lord by way of prayer. And that's why when we close our sermons, we again will issue those kind of thoughts. To a person who has never been baptized, you need to be forgiven of your sins. And that will involve obeying the gospel in the form of belief in the Lord, repentance of your sins, confession of the Lord's name, and being baptized for the remission of your sins. But once you become a Christian and proceed to live this life upon making mistakes along that line, one repents of them, one beseeches God in prayer appropriately. Today, as all of us give thought to those things, we perhaps remember one additional passage in which Jesus Himself said that in order for God to forgive us, we have to have forgiving spirits toward those who ask us to forgive them. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. At that point, why don't we close our lesson with this invitation. What must I do to be forgiven by God of my sins? We've learned about that in some detail today. And though it began in a somewhat dark way, learning that all are guilty of sin and that sin separates us from God, we finally were able to end on such a bright note. It's the blood of Christ that'll do it. And contacting His blood involves first the reality of baptism in water for the remission of sins. We'd be delighted to assist anyone in that condition in life. And what a joyous day, a celebratory day. How a thrilling day that would be. If you, however, as a wayward child of God have come to realize that your life does not reflect what it should, that Jesus is not really the Lord of your life any longer like He once was, you realize too, you can be forgiven. 1 John 1, 7 says it like this, If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. As long as we walk in the light, Christ's blood constantly is cleansing your sins and mine. But the issue comes, if you're not walking in that light, do something about it today. Repent of those things. Come before the Lord. We'd be delighted to pray for you. 
as you repent of those things and acknowledge them in confession, God's promised to forgive them. Today, if you need to be forgiven of sins in a way, in a public way that we can help, we invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.